Hi everyone, I'm your host, Jaco Selka, and you are listening to Hopefully Sustainable. Each week, I'm going to talk to extraordinary people who are doing extraordinary things to make the world a more sustainable place. My goal is for this episode to leave you feeling hopeful about an idea, a person, or the world in general. Thank you for joining me in this conversation, and all together we can be hopefully sustainable. Hi, everybody. I am really excited for today's episode, and I can't believe it's already the 40th episode. So thank you to everyone who has been listening, and if you are new here, welcome to Hopefully Sustainable. Today, I am speaking with Anne Kent, who is a farm girl turned dietitian located in Fort Collins, Colorado, which now makes our third guest from Fort Collins. Anne is the founder of Peas and Hoppiness, which is a business that helps families eat healthy without feeling overwhelmed and stressed. Being raised on a farm, Anne provides a really unique perspective on the agricultural industry and gives very insightful perspective on the relationship between farmers and consumers. I really enjoyed hearing about Anne's experience growing up on a farm, as my mom's uncle, Uncle Dave, is a farmer himself, and some of my favorite memories are visiting his farm every summer in Iowa. Throughout the episode, Anne explains the dichotomy that exists within the USDA when it comes to promoting healthy eating, but at the same time subsidizing crops that are mostly turned into processed foods. She also discusses the hurdles that individuals and families face when it comes to healthy eating. Through her educational background and her experience with her business, Peas and Hoppiness, Anne has learned so many great tools that help with eating healthy, avoiding food waste, and minimizing our impact on the environment. If eating healthy, cooking, or anything in between sounds at all overwhelming or unattainable, don't worry, Anne is here to help. Anne, welcome to Hopefully Sustainable. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and where you are located? My name is Anne Kent. I describe myself as a farm girl turned dietitian. I'm a registered dietitian nutritionist and I have my master's in nutrition and dietetics. I grew up on a farm in central Kansas and I moved to Fort Collins is where I live now about four years ago where I started my private practice peas and hoppiness a couple of years ago and now work full time as a registered dietitian creating meal guides and writing recipes and helping busy families get dinner on the table. I love the name of your brand, Peas and Happiness. It just makes you feel so happy. It's really cute. But as you mentioned, you grew up on a family farm, which has probably become a rare experience nowadays for a lot of Americans. But my mom's uncle is a farmer, so some of my favorite memories are going to visit his farm every summer. So I would love to hear more about your experience growing up on a farm and how that led you to your interest in nutrition and where you're at today. I loved growing up on a farm. Um, it was a family farm as when I grew up, it was um, originally homesteaded by my great 
grandparents. And so the family farm has been, the land has been in the family for generations. Uh, it's actually now transitioning to another family. So it's still a family farm. Actually, the new farmers uh, is a woman that I graduated high school with. So that's been a really neat transition because neither of my brother or I are going back to the farm, but it's great to see it remain remain a family farm. So it is located, like I said, right in the middle of Kansas. I always describe it if you fold a map of Kansas in half, it's right smack dab in the middle. <laughs> so it's a commodity farm, meaning that we grow wheat, corn, soybeans, milo, which is grain sorghum. Uh, so not a vegetable farm, it's a more traditional commodity farm, but still run by about three to five full-time employees, depending on the season that they're in. What was your experience like growing up? Did you help a lot with the farm work and were you really involved with that? Is that kind of what led to your interest in these topics and fields later on in life? Both of my parents were full-time farmers. So agriculture now is such that a lot of these family farms, it's very challenging to make a living. And oftentimes one of the partners works outside of the family farm. Mm -hmm. But my parents actually both did work full-time. My mom is also a physical therapist and spent a couple of years in my early childhood working outside the home. But for the most part, uh, she ran the books and did all the bookkeeping and also fed all of the people, which is a full-time job in and of itself, uh, while my dad was really the manager of the farm, spent a lot of time on the equipment. So I didn't run a lot of the equipment or have direct involvement in the farm work a lot. I definitely spent summers on the combine with my dad or playing in the wheat truck. So we would definitely were part of farm life because with both parents working full-time, we that's what we did as kids when we were not in school is we were around the farm. So my main role was actually helping my mom in the kitchen, which is how I gained my love of food. Um, mm. I, she was, is, is an amazing cook still to this day. She was sort of known by my friends as like the mom who could cook a really good meal. So that was always fun to have friends over. <laughs> um, but I would help her, we called it making lunches, which is where we would make the sandwiches, package the chips and fruit and send them out to the guys during busy harvest time or planting because my dad is the most efficient person I've ever met. So, and that's how he runs his farm is very, very efficient. So they didn't take time during the busy seasons to come into the house for meals. We'd serve them out in the field themselves. Yeah, that's exactly the same story of my mom's uncle and aunt. She always has to bring the food out to them and farmers are working so hard. So from my experiences, they can definitely eat. So I'm sure they really appreciated you all bringing the food out to them. So after growing up on the family farm and getting to college, what led you to become a nutritionist? Honestly, it was my love of food. So I just, I love to cook and I loved sharing that with other people. And I was kind of struggling in high school with where I wanted to go in life. I thought maybe I wanted to go into medicine and be a doctor. And then actually for my senior project in high school, my um, teacher told me that there was a a job called a dietitian that was about food and which blew my mind. I was so excited. <laughs> so for my senior project in high school, I wrote and sold a cookbook, my first ever cookbook, wow. uh, which was a really, really good learning experience. It was 
really hard. It took a lot of time and effort, uh, but that then led me to dietetics in college where I attended Kansas State University in Manhattan, Kansas. And then I did my internship and master's program at the University of Kansas Medical Center in Kansas City. And that's where I started my first job. I had a graduate position with the Diabetes Institute there and uh, started my first job as a diabetes educator and dietitian in their uh, in their endocrinology clinic. So um, that's how I transitioned from the farm to nutrition. And that's where I started to see some of these themes come up of the different silos of, you know, agriculture lived in this one world and then nutrition and these recommendations lived in this other world and then food and like practical skills of like how to get it on a table lived in a third world. And that's where I really started to see a need for these three silos to be united. To dive into that first silo of agriculture, I personally graduated from the College of Agricultural and Environmental Sciences, so I've learned a little bit about the USDA during my time in college, but can you talk about the role of the USDA when it comes to almost determining in a way what food we purchase and consume? It's such an interesting question and such a broad topic. The USDA sort of has two hats that it wears, which as a dietitian and from a farming background, I find that oftentimes they're sort of in conflict with each other. So one hat that the USDA, USDA wears, which most consumers are aware of, is providing nutrition guidelines. So everybody remembers the old food pyramid. Now they've updated it to my plate, but that is formulated by the USDA. Okay. So the other hat that they wear is overseeing subsidies, including for the agriculture sector, including crop insurance, um, direct payments that we saw last year, especially with some of the um, results of, of the tariffs that were that were put into place. The mm -hmm. USDA was the branch of government that reached out to farmers and said, here's, here's the money that we're going to give you. Sometimes it's attached to specific crops or specific programs. They also have a conservation branch as well, um, where they do incentivize farmers in certain areas of conservation work. Um, but primarily, those are the two hats. One is in agriculture and sort of directly or indirectly telling farmers which crops to grow. And the other one is in nutrition, telling individuals what food they should be eating. Can you elaborate a little bit on how those two are in conflict? I know on a lot of episodes of my podcast, we've talked about the inequities of agriculture and access to food. So how does the USDA fall into those or create those inequities? So whatever the farmers are growing is what's going to be most readily available, which is going to be what consumers eat. So what I observed in the nutrition space, especially working with patients with diabetes, all of my recommendations, which were supported by the USDA, were to reduce the amount of processed grains and increase the amount of fruits and vegetables. We talked about protein too, but ultimately the recommendation is also to decrease animal proteins in, in this because the standard American diet just contains much more protein than we really need. 
However, when I went back home to the farm and would talk to my parents and just started to notice and think about the crops that they were growing, they were growing all of the crops that I was telling my patients not to eat. And so I started to sort of have this cognitive dissonance where, you know, my parents are good faith farmers. They want to feed the world. The farmers that I know and love care about the people they're feeding, but the crop insurance and the subsidies are for different crops than what my patients were needing. And so I think it's important to to realize that agriculture is going to be the base of what we are consuming, because whatever we're producing the most of is going to be the least cost. And consumers, especially low income consumers, are highly driven by the price of food, of course, Mm -hmm. that um, we see that if you divide populations by income, people in the lowest quintile of income spend the least amount of money on food, but proportionally the most of their income. So they proportionally spend a higher percentage of their income on food. Whereas the people in the highest quintile of income spend a much larger amount of money on food, but it's percentage wise a much lower percentage of their income. And so what happens then is the foods that are the cheapest are going to be purchased by the lowest income consumers, which in our modern society where we produce a lot of those commodity crops is going to mean that they're con- that they're producing or they're um, purchasing a lot of processed grain, processed sugar, and processed meat. Yeah, that's definitely a huge issue. And there's so many moving parts and different players involved in this issue. And like you mentioned, the low income people are having to spend such a huge proportion of their income on food, yet they also have the similar issue or the same issue at the same time of not even having access to healthy food. So a lot of times the processed foods are their only options. And I know you like to reference Michael Pollan, and I read The Omnivore's Dilemma actually in high school, and that was one of my first introductions to sustainability, but he describes a national eating disorder. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that means? I think you started to hit on it a little bit with how we're really having to shift from the food pyramid to the updated version and try to figure out what is the best things for us to eat. It's so confusing, right? And it feels like it shouldn't be. And while I definitely don't agree with everything that Michael Pollan writes, especially coming from a farming background, um, because he is a journalist and not a farmer by by trade, (laughs) I do think that he brings up some really good points. Um, Another quote that I really like of his is uh, he, when talking about what we should eat, he says, eat real food, not too much, and mostly plants, which distills all of this confusing nutrition information into what really matters. And his description of this national eating disorder is talking about how in the 1970s, when we realized that heart disease increasing, diabetes, we saw a lot of these chronic diseases increasing, we noticed that our fat intake had significantly increased primarily through animal proteins um, because they were being fed all of our excess grain that we were producing. And so as a result, the USDA came out with these guidelines where we needed to significantly reduce our fat intake. Well, fat is a flavor carrier, talking about this silo of food, and fat is very, very important in cooking and making things taste flavorful. So if you remove fat from the food, it tastes very bland. Food companies then saw that they needed to make their food palatable. So in place of 
fat, they put in sugar to their food. Mm. So in order to make the fat-free cupcakes taste good, they may not have fat. So they could put on their label that it was low fat or fat free, but that now they were packed with highly processed flour and highly processed sugar. So fast forward a a few decades, and we learned that highly processed flour and highly processed sugar and a very high carbohydrate diet is also very detrimental to health and also causes a lot of these same problems. So our whole nation swung from needing to go low fat to now all of a sudden we need to go low carb. And at the end of the day, individual consumers are like, well, what the heck do we eat? (laughs) Like there's nothing left to eat. There's only protein, which as a dietitian, (laughs) I see a lot in practice where, you know, well-intentioned doctors, medical professionals, and patients are all trying to increase their protein intake. When really the reality is they don't need more protein. They need more fresh produce, more fruits and vegetables. Carbohydrates aren't bad. It's more about how they're packaged. So it's more about eating whole foods than it is to cut out a certain, certain macronutrient carbs, fat, or protein. Yeah. It's like you said, it's so confusing and it seems like eating is such a simple thing and we don't even think about it most of the time, but there's so many different things that we're trying to pay attention to and think about when we're eating. There's so many different diets nowadays that people are trying, but it comes back to like the quote that you mentioned by Michael Pollan is just that we need to focus on eating whole foods and mostly plants. And that is where you come in and your brand comes in helping people. And your mission is to help busy families get a healthy dinner on the table by providing tasty, tested recipes, and helping with the practical nitty-gritty of meal planning. I know that my sister played travel soccer growing up, and we spent a lot of our times late at night at her practices, traveling on the weekends, and a lot of times it's just easier to eat out or to eat these ready-made meals that you can just throw in the microwave. So as a mother yourself, what kind of struggle do you face when it comes to feeding your family healthy meals on a daily basis? I think you hit the nail on the head. It's this busy world that we live in where we're constantly on the go. So unless you plan ahead, it's almost impossible to figure out what to eat. And it's doubly hard if you're not comfortable in the kitchen. So, you know, I create recipes like this is my job. And so if I have to find a meal on the fly, like I can usually figure it out. But if I didn't have a background in cooking, it is incredibly overwhelming. So what my, my business, my goal is to help unite these silos of food and nutrition specifically, and just make it easier for people to know what they can eat, have a plan, have recipes that they don't have to spend hours searching for, but they know that are going to be balanced nutritionally. So they don't have to wonder if they're, you know, checking all the right boxes and also be practical so that they don't have to visit three different specialty grocery stores. And they're also going to taste good enough that the kids actually eat their vegetables. Because, (laughs) you know, if I always tell people, if your vegetable is so healthy that you don't eat it, it's not doing you any good. So add a little bit of fat, add a little bit of salt, enjoy your veggies and, and enjoy your meal. Yeah, that just reminded me one time I was babysitting for a family and they were trying to get their kids to eat vegetables. And so they actually had me make 
broccoli brownies when I was babysitting for them. And I was thinking that I didn't even want to eat that. So yeah, it sounds like your practices with peas and hoppiness is really helpful at getting families, including the kids, to eat healthy. So when it comes to your brand and your guidance that you give to these families, how do you help the families overcome their busy lives to prioritize healthy eating? You know, most people really need a system in place to get this done. And it needs to be step by step and they need to have permission to not be perfect. I -hmm. think the number one thing that I work with clients, both one-on-one and both, and also in my membership program is just helping them to identify the next step to take, and then just take that step. So, you know, when someone first signs up for my membership, um, they click the button to say like, do you cook three or less times per week or or three or more times per week. And if the answer is three or less, then I really encourage people to only pick out one or two of the recipes and plan, think ahead to what days they're gonna make them. Pick a day that you're not running all over the county, you know, (laughs) taking your kid to soccer practice. Pick a day when you have time that if the recipe took twice as long than you thought, nobody's going to get hangry and it's going (laughs) to fail. And and just focus on on a couple days per week because, you know, most of my recipes include leftovers. So if you make one recipe, you get multiple meals out of it. And the more often you cook, the more tools you have in your tool belt. So the first time you cut an onion, it's going to take you like 20 minutes and it's going to be annoying and you're going to be frustrated. And then the next time it's going to take you a little bit less time. And, you know, pretty soon you just, you don't even have to look at the instructions of how to chop an onion. You just know how to do it. But if you're both trying to cook five nights a week, figure out what to make, and you don't have any of those skills going in, it's so overwhelming because that's not your only job. You also probably have a a job that you work at. You're also a parent and you're also trying to do this thing called self-care. And so like, (laughs) how do you incorporate all of these things? So really having a plan, taking it one step at a time. I really try to break this down and make it doable for families. You mentioned meal planning. That's something I personally try to do. And I know that it can actually help reduce food waste as well. How does meal planning play into your guidance and what kind of advice do you give your clients when it comes to meal planning? Meal planning is one of the most important things. I'm glad you brought that up. There's a couple different ways that I encourage people to meal plan. So depending on how structured they are and just their personality, I have a meal planning template, um, which is actually a free download on my website that walks people through thinking through their events for the week, how many people they're feeding. So again, like the example of soccer practice, are you even going to be home on that night? Do you even need to cook? Uh, And then it helps you think through how often you're going to cook, if you have leftovers, and the extras, the lunches, the breakfast, the snacks that sometimes we forget about. So if someone is like brand new to meal planning and they have a family, that is the most helpful thing they can do is to actually fill out that template a couple times until, again, you get used to your own rhythm. After that, if someone is pretty comfortable already with meal planning and they have sort of a structure, um, they can take the, the meal guide that I provide in the membership and just think through when you're going to make the meals or just have a plan for how many times you're going to cook roughly. In terms of reducing 
food waste, one of the my biggest recommendations is to plan around perishable vegetables. So some vegetables will last for months and some vegetables will last for days. We've all bought the avocado and then it's bad on day three. So, <laughs> yes. you know, I always encourage people to plan for their most perishable vegetables for the first couple of recipes that they're making. And that way, if something does happen and your schedule goes awry, you can reschedule that meal for the next day instead of, you know, banking that that avocado is going to be perfect on day three and it's not. And then you have to come up with a new meal. You've given so much great advice for any listeners who are inspired by what they hear today. What is one piece of advice that you would give to families who are trying to prioritize healthy eating moving forward? I think it would be to pick one thing. So if it's to uh, try a new vegetable, take your kids to the grocery store, take them to the farmer's market, pick out the vegetable and, and do that. If your priority is to cook more at home, pick one night of the week where again, you have time to do that and, and make a plan, go to the grocery store and do that one thing. Uh, my, again, my biggest recommendation is not to go overboard. It's, it's usually, it is very, very rare that someone truly needs one of these extreme diets out there. So it's easy to get up, get easy to get caught up in keto or intermittent fasting or veganism or, or whatever it is. But really the most important thing is to just take the next step. I saw on your blog post, you talked about being vegetarian, but also being flexitarian. For anyone who hasn't heard of that term or that kind of diet, can you talk about what that is? A flexitarian diet is basically a vegetarian diet that occasionally includes meat or fish or other animal products. And the reason why I include this is it has to do with that next step idea. so in my goal, I, I told you how I'm uniting the silos of food and nutrition, but that agriculture piece is also really important to me. So in helping people as individuals eat more sustainably, the biggest part of, of diet that we can control that has to do with climate change is how many animal products we're eating. Uh, beef, lamb, and dairy are specifically energy intensive to produce. And it's, it's simple when you think about it because it takes more energy to eat the animal that ate the plant than it does to just eat the plant. And so animals are sort of a middleman in in the food chain. And that's why it's more sustainable to to eat lower on the food chain. However, I recognize that not everybody is ready to do that. My family is not ready to do that either. So we are not all the way vegetarian or vegan, but we have reduced our our animal protein intake. And that's a, a big part of these meal guides as well, that every week I include at least one vegetarian recipe to just start people down the path of trying new new proteins, new foods, because it's hard to make all these changes all at once. So just making some of these small steps, if everybody makes these small steps, it's going to be a lot more productive than one person doing it perfectly. Yes, I really love that advice because a lot of times when it comes to being vegan or vegetarian, my family has a lot of conversations around, well, how is this going to impact the farmers? And we still want to support farmers because of our family being in the field of being a farmer. So I really like this piece of advice. And a lot of people, like you mentioned, aren't ready to go 
fully vegan or fully vegetarian, but they can still make an impact and make more sustainable choices by having this flexitarian diet, kind of like the meatless Mondays or challenging yourself to just one meal a week that's vegetarian. And you can go up from there and have two meals a week that's vegetarian if you if it, the first one goes well. So I really, really like that advice. You recently posted about seasonal vegetables and I really loved this post. I know that this is something I personally need to educate myself more on. I think a lot of us as consumers are used to going to the grocery store. We can get any vegetable, any fruit at any time of the year, and we don't really consider the seasonality of vegetables and fruits. Can you talk about the importance of eating seasonally and how we can educate our, ourselves on what is in season at that time? Seasonal veg vegetables and other produce is sort of the link between agriculture and food, and it's a way to help us understand more about where our food comes from and, you know, what is in season right now. So I encourage people to eat seasonal produce for several reasons. First of all, it's seasonal produce is, has the ability to be picked at the peak of ripeness and shipped a smaller distance. So instead of purchasing food that's shipped from South America in the winter, if you can find winter seasonal produce when it's cold outside, you're going to find better quality of food for several in several areas. So you'll have better nutritional quality because it hasn't lost its quality in shipping. It'll taste better, which is a huge part of liking vegetables. A really good example of this would be a fresh tomato off the vine if you've ever had a garden versus that bland pale looking tomato in the grocery store in December. Those are two wildly different foods. And I found, especially with working with clients one-on-one -on -one, that a lot of the reason they didn't like vegetables was because they had never had one that was fresh. And it makes such a big difference. So it, it primarily, I think it's great to eat seasonally because it tastes better and it's gonna be more enjoyable. Secondly, because it's more nutritious, but thirdly, because you're also actually able to support local farmers and especially, you know, I think we experienced such a unique happening in our food system last year during the pandemic. Um, I don't know about in your area, but in our area, you went to the grocery store and the shelves were literally empty. Mm -hmm. I've never experienced that before as a consumer. And my dad, the farmer always says that uh, in our modern food system in America, we have exchanged efficiency for resiliency. So what that means is we are very, very efficient in our food systems. We produce exactly what we need in the quantity we need in the, in the type we need. So bulk versus individual consumers. But when something happens like a global pandemic that we have no control over, you can see how that breaks the system. And the, we were not out of food in the pandemic. In fact, there were lots of news articles about how farmers were dumping pounds and thousands and tons of fresh produce because they didn't have a market for, any, for it anymore. So I think it's incredibly important, not just you know, that feel good feeling of supporting your local farmer because they're a small business, but also because I think it's a little bit dangerous to put all of our eggs in the basket of our large food system, because something like a, a pandemic or, you know, a natural disaster could really harm us in the future. And we need to support those small businesses so that they are there in the future when we need them. Yeah, that is a really insightful phrase that your dad said. And it's so true because we went to the grocery store and we are used to the grocery stores always having an abundance of everything that we need. So it definitely was a shock to go and see these empty shelves at the grocery store when we're not used to that. 
And for anyone who's interested in learning more about what happened during the pandemic with farmers, I did an episode with a group called FarmLink who kind of stepped in to be that intermediary for the farmers who were having to dump all of their food or dump the milk down the drain. It was really horrible to see that happening when consumers are going to the grocery store and we know the farmers have the food, but there was no way to get that to the grocery stores. So that was definitely a very interesting aspect of the pandemic. And I'm personally very excited for the farmers markets to come back. I know when I moved to Atlanta in the middle of the pandemic, most of the farmers markets were closed. And I know that really impacted the farmers. So I'm excited for those to start opening back up now that more people are getting vaccinated. And that's a really great way for me and for a lot of people who are fortunate to have farmers markets near them to eat locally, eat seasonally and support their farmers. So I know that as part of Peas and Hoppiness, you have all these recipes for families to access. And so I'm interested, what are what is one or what are some of your favorite recipes that you make for your family? Ooh, that's such a great question. Um, there are so many. Um, <laughs> well, tomorrow night for our um, family's Easter celebration, we're celebrating early because of scheduling, of course. We're having a, a, our easy Greco-style lamb chops. And I know I just said that lamb is high on the food chain, so that's why it's one of our very specialty dinners. Mm. But that is one of my family's favorite meals. I always have found meats like lamb or that are a little bit different. They're hard to cook or I'm intimidated by them. Um, but this recipe is so easy. L literally you marinate it and then it takes less than 10 minutes to actually cook. So wow. that's one of those examples of something that seems difficult, but is actually really easy. Um, we like really flavorful meals. So another of our recent favorites was a lemon garlic butter caper sauce served over halibut. The vegetarian Ooh. version was served over pasta and it was also really, really good. So that's another favorite. Um, we've also uh, some sometimes been surprised by some of the vegetarian or vegan meals that I've created. So one of my recent vegan favorites was a portobello stew. So it's similar to a beef stew, but I actually braise the mushrooms in, um, in butter. And then we, uh, I deglaze the plant pan with red wine and oh my goodness, the flavor of that meal was just so hearty and comfort food, but there was no meat in it. We served it over egg noodles and during a snowy time here in Colorado, and it was just wonderful. So. Oh yeah, that sounds delicious. I definitely want to look into that recipe and try it sometime. For listeners who are interested in following along with your social media or looking into your services, where can listeners find you? You can find me on Instagram or Facebook at Peas and Hoppiness, and that's hoppiness like the beer with an O, so H-O-P-P-I-N-E-S-S. -S. Uh, on my website, you can also find several of these free resources that I've mentioned, including the meal planning template, uh, peasandhoppiness.com slash Anne, which is A-N-N. I'm Anne without an E, unlike Green Gables. <laughs> Perfect. I'll be sure to link all of those in the show notes. When it comes to our agriculture system as a whole, this podcast is all about hope, and I know sometimes it can seem really negative, but what are some of the positive or positives or benefits to the agricultural system right now? I appreciate that question because I think it's easy to be 
negative about whatever it is in our current system that needs to change, which is good because it drives us to change. But also, I think we need to understand where we came from and how we got here and why we got here in the first place. And despite a lot of the negatives, our current food system in America does produce the healthiest in terms of the most amount of calories, the safest food and the least expensive food that we've ever experienced as a human civilization. So, you know, never before in in human history have we been worried about getting too many calories. And that's where we are today. So now we can have lots of discussions about perhaps we are lacking in some nutrients, but we have solved one problem. Um, and, and the other thing that I think is really important to remember is that when it comes to sustainability, the definition of sustainability is to continue in perpetuity. And I've interviewed lots of farmers for my blog and asked them that question, what does sustainability mean to you? And the consistent answer for all of them is that sustainability means that my business can continue. So I think it's important to understand that farming at the end of the day is a business. They are they need to make money and feed their own family. So farmers are, are responding to the incentives that we as the taxpayers, as the government, as the American people are asking of them. So if we don't change what we're asking, if we don't change our policies to make more fruits and vegetables and less of these commodity grains, then they're gonna to continue to respond to the incentives because they're answering the question that we're asking of them. So I just want to give a shout out to farmers. They work incredibly hard and I'm proud to, to come from a farming family and just wanna recognize that you know, I think we need to ask the right questions in order to get the answers that we want. Yes, I really appreciate you saying that. I know that my mom's uncle works harder than anyone I know, and our food system would not be where it is at today without all of the farmers who are working day and night, 24 hours a day, all 365 days out of the year. So, and a lot of times I, I really see what you're saying that sustainability can be really hard on farmers and kind of look to them as being the problem, but we need to look at the full system and see where our role is in that problem as well. And I appreciate you pointing out all the positives. We ended on a very hopeful note, but to add even more hope to the conversation, what are you hopeful about right now? This seems to be a common answer to the question, but I am really hopeful for our next generation. I think Gen Z, you know, in, in two ways. First of all, Gen Z is learning in real time about climate change. They're seeing the the problems and you know and and being taught the solutions right now. So I'm a millennial. I learned a lot of this when I went to college and you know in the second part of my life. But my stepson, who's 12, is learning about climate change and the warming oceans and all of these these things right now. So they sort of have like a step up in being able to fix the problem. And the second way that I think this generation has an impact is how they're questioning and um, asking the older generation to make change. I've heard a lot and a lot of my, my members are actually of an older generation. And part of the reason they like the vegetarian meals, for example, is because their 20 year old kid comes home from college who now is a vegetarian and they're like, oh my gosh, what do I feed him? And luckily they have, they have a recipe that tastes good that the whole family likes, not just the vegetarian. So I think it's really cool how that generation is really pushing 
pushing all of us to think about things and to be better. So it can only get better from here, right? Yeah, definitely. And I feel like I've said this in a few episodes before, but sustainability can have such a domino effect. And once one person makes a change or one person starts taking a sustainable action, it just leads to so many people around them also taking those actions. So I really appreciate you sharing what you are hopeful about. And I really enjoyed this conversation and a lot of the topics that we hit on today, I'm extremely personally interested in those. So I really enjoyed learning more about the work you're doing and I appreciate you helping all of these families try to prioritize healthy eating. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure to be on your show. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you want to learn more about today's guest or just say hello, check out the show notes and find us on Instagram at hopefully sustainable pod. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. As you finish this episode, remember that we are all on a personal journey to make the world a better place, but it's all about progress, not perfection. Until next time, stay hopeful and stay sustainable.